You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Land of Legacy Podcast. This is your host, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. We're coming to you right here on Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network. We have another exciting podcast for you guys this week. This is one that's been kind of on my heart for a little while. And uh, actually probably since, I don't know, I was 10 years old? Not. Uh, I don't know. It's been it's been in the works for a while. And recently, Matt and I were um, at a banquet for Conservation Federation of Missouri and there was a lot of talk about conservation, all the things, all the great things they're doing for conservation, and and it seems like there's been this kind of move or shift to where a lot more people, the everyday hunters, are talking about conservation, and that kind of goes with you know you're talking conservation. Now this podcast isn't. I, I guess I should forewarn you that uh, hopefully toes aren't being stepped on, even though I know we're probably gonna go there. And so it comes down to the talk of conservation. And, and frankly, let's just say it, talk is cheap. When we get into conservation and we want to talk about how great it is or all the thing, wonderful things we're doing, there's a lot of things that we're doing or we're seeing on social media especially that, that we're doing, how hunters are doing to improve habitat and trying to make their hunting better. But it's actually that it's a step back for conservation. So this week's podcast, all devoted to conservation. And I want you this whole time to be thinking about what does conservation mean to you? What is it when you look at hunting and conservation, what it is that motivates you and inspires you? I think that oftentimes there's the motive. It's really, really good. The intent is really, really good by most people out there to do things and and try and conserve their resources available to them or they have access to, whether that's a hunting lease or whether they own a property, whatever it may be. But the lack of education on things, I think sometimes interferes with that. Oh, totally. And this, this, we, we typically go the education route, but to think address conservation and, and, understand completely the techniques basically that you can do or that would be better so you have a conservation mindset is something that we need to talk about and then we'll get back I know in the next weeks of educating on those techniques but I think it's really important to say this is conservation these are techniques that are going to get you long-term results yeah and and that's kind of for me that's what has been kicked around and I've said it to some other people and and it's really just kind of coming down to 
conservation and if we really are what we're doing in conservation rather than just talking about it. And I think another thing that needs to be super clear up front is, you know, if you partake in the outdoors and you're buying hunting license, you're buying fishing license, your dollars are going back into conservation, which is great. That's awesome. But we all do that. So we're we're trying to go beyond and encourage people to go further in their thought processes and their actions that they take towards conserving the resources that they enjoy. Yeah, I think somewhere in the notes we have, I don't even know where it's at because we have a lot, a lot of notes on this week's podcast. But uh, one of those things, some of the easiest things to do to be a conservationist is obviously buy tags, bring more people into hunting so there's more gear because every time we buy tags and gear, portion of that's going to conservation um, and then you look at, are you a member of an organization, um, a conservation organization, Ducks Unlimited, Quail Forever, QDMA, NWTF, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Those are other ways to be involved in conservation. But this week, we kind of a lot of the stuff we talk about is going to be the management side of it um, and how that's really uh, long-term beneficial to conservation. So um, basically... Oh, step number two, when we get into talking about it, I think that, for me, it's like the ongoing debate, political debate. There's anti-hunters and there's hunters. And when an anti-hunter attacks a hunter, we automatically throw out the, I'm a conservationist, I'm more of a conservationist than you, I'm doing all this stuff for conservation. Sure, that's great, that's a great stand, um, because we we are conservationists. We, we buy tags, yeah. we're doing stuff for conservation. But let's take it a step further and really... I think it's so. The conservation standpoint's really kind of our anthem of of hunters is we're hunters, but a lot of times we we do actions. Maybe we don't even know any better, but we're doing actions that aren't actually for conservation. And I have a story. I'm just as guilty as everyone in this uh, that I'll share later of how I was nowhere near a conservationist in my efforts, but I didn't know any better. So. I know we've made we've mentioned it before in, in other podcasts, but you know, as many miles as we put um, on our trucks and have window time, windshield time, driving down the road, you see so many acres and so many acres that are are not, um, I guess, the the practices, the techniques, the use of them, not conservation minded, and and thinking long term, and that's that's tough to see and and tough to go through. Uh, um, and witness on a daily basis. And I think so many, so many times that as we're driving, we just pass it by and don't even think about it. Don't even even consider the long-term effects of what that land is at the time. Oh, it's almost gut wrenching. And, and it kind of goes with how often do you and I, when we go out to the farms and we're working and I think of all the times when we're trained for, we've trained our eye to locate honey locusts. And we're on, like, full-on honey locust assault. And so then we start driving down the road, and you just notice honey locusts everywhere. And then we go in full-on eastern red cedar assault, and you drive across the country, and you're like, oh, my god. It's a little gosh. depressing. And so pretty much as you <laughs> – it's really depressing. And as we've trained our eyes to locate all these species, it's like, oh, wow, we are – we're winning a – battle at the farm but overall we're kind of losing a war yeah oh yeah yeah so. they're, they're skirmishes and that's what hopefully a lot of our clients properties are in their neighborhood 
Um, but that's what it takes. It takes an initiative. It takes a start. You've got to start somewhere and, and be the voice. And that's what we're going to talk about later on is, is if you're the one out there doing the, the work and you feel like you're doing grunt work, um, don't because you're going to start something in your neck of the woods um, because you're making a difference. And so continue that. And a lot of times you see so much, um, I guess, lack of conservation. I think from, from my background on the East Coast, because there's, it was just inhabited longer. So there's been more disruption from humans by humans in that area. And I look at the timber quality. It's like, oh, I look at the, the land use and it's just disheartening the invasive species all throughout the eastern United States. And obviously we're dealing with it here too, but there's such a lack of conservation throughout oh. Yes, the country, right. and and it's all privately. Like I don't say all, you know, a lot of the West is is publicly owned or mm-hmm. federally owned, but really the majority of land throughout the United States, I mean, vast majority, is privately owned. We are the ones who are going to be held responsible for it. You know, this yeah. this is on our shoulders. Yeah. Well, even even when you look at west let's just say nevada who's i forget the numbers but it's over like 90 percent public mm-hmm. owned but the way it's managed by same people i mean we're we're still managing that land and it's even though it's not as a in the east where it's constantly being manicured or managed it's still the lack thereof is not in great light of conservation it's not being the, the practices still aren't the best use no there's no right. there's very the, the places where the practice is on point it's so small that it's almost non-existent mm-hmm. in, a, in a grand scheme of things yeah for sure so and I, th- I think it's important as we talk about you know kind of the west and and the east and everything I think there's two definitions that we just really need to get out there in the open and kind of clear up and that is preservation versus conservation and what the two of them are and how they're similar but how they're different also and preservation if you just look up the definition is simply to keep alive or in existence and those two words a lot of times you have people oh I'm a you know I I believe in preserving what we have well I believe in conserving what we have and how how is that going to differ because conservation its definition is to repair or prevention of deter- deterioration and protection, restoration of the natural environment. I, I'll simplify that and go with the one that I learned in college, which is the one a lot of people hear too, is the wise use. Just in simple mm-hmm. terms, wise use. But when you put it in a natural resource, it's, uh, I guess, category. It's the wise use of our natural resources. Well, And I think the key word in that is use. Oh, totally. It totally. is being used wisely so there's action taken involved with conservation versus preservation where it is simply to keep her alive or in existence whereas it's basically don't touch just let it go yeah <laughs> when i hear preservation and, and 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 i think i think when you look at it from a grand scale there's a, both parts have a little bit to stand on and i agree with parts of both but overall, I'm more of a conservationist and a preservationist, and and for a lot of reasons. But I'll just give a quick story. I don't know if it's where it's at in the notes, but the quick story when I think of preservation is 
we basically picture nature in its in its own little world and we just want to preserve that. Unfortunately, due to the fact that we're in a cursed world and we're have invasive species and we've introduced all these other species that aren't native to that area, we have a full-fledged assault on our natural resources. And I think of a wilderness area that I won't name, but I've been to a lot and drive by it a lot. And it, wilderness area kind of stands for that preservation. We're going to let it do its thing. Don't, don't manipulate it. We're not going to conserve. There's hardly, there's no electric or Gas. mechanical engines right. on, across it. It's just, it's doing its thing. It's nature at its finest. Unfortunately, it's basically nothing but a cesspool of invasive species. It's well, cedars and Cerise Lespedes uh, and Johnson grass and all these other invasives. And unfortunately, that's like ground zero for that area of the invasive species going out across the private. That's public ground, but it's got all these invasive species. And now that's basically where all the invasives are repopulating the surrounding areas. I think if I was born in 1970 and lived where I did live where I grew up and then moved to the Midwest, you could have asked me the question, are you a preservationist or you're a conservationist? And I probably would have said at that time, man, I'm a preservationist. But at this time in this day and age, I'm a conservationist by far because throughout that time frame, that, that time span, we have destroyed or done a really poor job at managing the natural resources. So that's why you have to restore and repair what was broken and fixed. And that's why I think now, for sure, conservation is way outweighing my thoughts on preservation. Yeah, not to get too political here. Yeah. <laughs> but that's kind of where we stand as far as what we see across the country and, and how we look at the, the management and the wise use of our natural resources. Is If it's left alone, a lot of times it goes... It gets bad. It might spiral downhill. Yeah. It just might. And a lot of times it's not might. It probably (laughs) is gonna. (laughs) There's a little bit of hope in that might. Yeah. So unfortunately, that's the world we live in. And so that's why this whole podcast hopefully encourages you and inspires you to be more of a conservationist. And even if pat yourself on the back, if you're already members of all kinds of nonprofit conservation organizations and you're volunteering time and you're fighting invasive species pat yourself on the back because you're doing a great thing but we're asking for more we're being greedy more people involved help more people improve more land and overall just i think there's a as you mentioned earlier matt there's a knowledge of uh, understanding what you're doing and what the effects are long term and that is going to be one of the biggest ways to improve it, our, it, our wise use of natural resources. Yeah, it doesn't really matter what field you're in or or if you're an engineer or you're a teacher. Knowledge is power. And if you have knowledge, you can do things. And when it comes to conservation, you just have to be knowledgeable about what it is you're doing, and you can have a great impact. We just have to, to be educated on what we're doing. And I think as hunters, that's our duty. That's our responsibility. We talk about, you know, making ethical shots and, and, and um, making moral decisions and ethical decisions, you know, as we take game and harvest game. That's the same thing as with managing these resources. We have to make ethical, smart decisions on, do I leave this tree? Do I take this tree? Do I burn this 
patch of grasses or you know do i do i try and terminate this with with herbicide what is it but you need you need to have the knowledge to make those decisions and the wise decisions yes and and it's really easy to get gain that knowledge or fairly easy you can hire heck you, we you, did it yeah i mean i i do it every single day of trying to educate myself on more and more things um and even even if you don't have the time you can definitely consult a lot of state agencies here at missouri has a great resource to where you can just call up a forester and have him come look at your property and find ways to improve it and a lot of times it's free so there's certainly ways to educate yourself that aren't going to cost you um, maybe anything Um, then there's other ways that you can buy books and find the native habitat to your location and look at how you can restore it for sure, and I, I think it kind of really boils down to it, beyond, beyond being a hunter, or beyond being a land manager. You know that you know what coincides with that is the the taxes, the sales tax of guns, ammo, uh, fishing license, all that stuff goes to conservation. And beyond being part of these nonprofit organizations like the QDMA and stuff like that, what else are you doing? What else are you doing? I'm improving habitat. I'm helping uh, ways that we're doing it is we started a branch, QDMA branch. Mm-hmm. So hopefully we're reaching people. Well, we know we are with the podcast. People listen all over the country, but and hopefully we're inspiring you to be a better conservationist. But on a local standpoint, we're back home where I'm from, and I guess where you hope to live one day, Matt. One is, of these days, um, where we've started a QDMA branch to help people on a on a local scale of help to improve the habitat there it's got to sell more property first got to sell we'll more there. property we'll get there so there's a lot of things yeah uh, and and i think it's important to note at this time though too is even if you're even if you're a public ground hunter and and you don't have that these resources to to physically go out and manipulate the habitat that doesn't mean really we're going to give you a break today it simply means that there's other jobs or other positions that need to be filled too to basically advocate or be a voice for conservation. You can enroll in these workshops that your state may put on, volunteer work, educate, go into classrooms, educate people, or raise funds for conservation organizations. If you don't have that access to private land, again, to run a chainsaw or to whatever it may be, there's still roles that need to be um, taken up, basically. So every hunter, every outdoorsman is is basically a target this week, really. You betcha. I, I think of here in Missouri, MDC has all kinds of workshops or volunteer days to where you can just go and help restore the habitat. So I think of a lot of them up around St. Louis where it's bush honeysuckle removal. And people just show up from all over and they help. Take bush honeysuckle off the public grounds. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's just one little thing you can do to help improve the habitat and overall be a better conservationist. So I, I know I know you want to ask the question number six on the notes here. Oh, I was still trying to think of if we got through everything. You know, yeah, I don't sure usually do. follow along through the notes, but this week there's so many topics, I guess, that and so many points that I want to hit. Because a lot of times I kind of just sit over here and go with the flow. But this week I have several things, so um, several topics. But I guess number six, and this is kind of the one that really the whole, for me, the heartbeat of this podcast of 
what kind of motivated me and and wanted to try and go into this and and overall here it is here's the question for you guys if you walked away from your farm today and you never returned what would your thumbprint thumbprint be i screwed it up that gummit say it again if you walked away from your farm today and never returned what would your thumbprint be what would your legacy to that land be my, yeah, my thing is, as as many times as land turns over from one hand to another, what's that next landowner going to say if you don't if you don't own it forever? What's that next land landowner going to say about the time that you spent there? Are they, are they going to be happy? Are they going to be like, oh man, I kind of got myself into a mess. I've got I've got my work cut out for me. Did you see all the junk piles and draws over there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think of like that's one of my favorite things about our job is seeing what you know, basically trying to look into the history of the farm and and understand what it was like. For example, two days ago we were at a property and there was a barn, basically set in the timber. Now you know mm-hmm. it wasn't built in the timber, but it's like man, I wonder what that guy, whoever built that barn, would say about this place now. Yep, and and for me, what motivates me. Uh, hopefully the family farm stays in the Keith name forever. But um, if it doesn't, I hope that the work that we've done and continued to do motivates the next person to go, man, these guys had it figured out. I want to continue that tradition. And I, I hope that's what's going to happen. Um, and so that's kind of for me is. But let's just say there's a, there's an instance, even even if it remains in your family and, and you just have to, Let's say your wife gets a job and you have to move away for 10 years. Yeah. What What's it going to look like when you come back? Is it going to be worse or is it going to be better? You know, what? what's the condition if you were just to drop everything and walk away? What would happen? There would still be fescue pastures and hopefully there's going to be a lot of native grasses coming back in. Um, hopefully, and, and you know, like I say, the, the farm is at the beginning stages just due to lack of time in the past, but there's been a lot of groundwork uh, laid and a lot of plans laid and a lot of hard work done um, in the last couple of months that have really, I think of the one project we just looked at a few days ago, mm-hmm. that was a, for I guess a better way to put it, there's probably a better way to put it, but it was junk horse pasture. There was a horse there. <laughs> Um, that we were ain't nobody like a horse (laughs) what is that (laughs) phrase a client i don't i wish i could remember the name but he said that the smell of cow maneuver means somebody's making money to smell a horse oh that was that was joe johnson we were showing him a property a farm the other day we were driving by like oh he's got horses yeah and it was yeah smell of cow maneuver means you're making money smell a horse means you're spending money that's it and so that area up front was just under 20 acres that was basically one horse in there um i guess we were doing our good deed and allowing the horse to be there but we had to we moved directions the horse is no longer on that on that part of the farm and it was mostly cedars and briars the horse had basically little vegetation was there and didn't touch the briars and so it's just briars everywhere you know what it did it high graded. It took the best and left, left the rest. rest. And yes. it didn't have enough grazing pressure to maintain or keep up with everything. So it slowly got encroached and taken over by cedar and these massive, massive briar patches. And, you know, oh, I told you when we were looking at it, when I was a kid, it was still a cedar thicket. 
Like mm-hmm. it hasn't. The only thing that's really changed is it's gotten it spread out because there was more younger cedars growing around it, around the big ones, and they've gotten taller. Mm-hmm. And because of that, there's been less vegetation underneath. But in the last couple of months, my dad, brother, and myself, mainly those two, not me, we've been traveling so much, but we've cut the cedars. And now we've, uh, it doesn't even look like the same farm. No, not that, that 20 acres got a facelift in half. I mean, it, it really, really changed the appearance of it. And it, and it's kind of one of those areas that you look at the landscape. Now, the Web Soil Survey says it's a woodland, but you look around and it's more likely leaning towards the edge of a savanna. And so there's scattered, huge, wolfy-looking post oaks. And there's native grass remnants but there's still fescue, briars, and cedars. Now the cedars are cut. A lot of other trees that aren't really supposed to be in that site are cut. And it's going to be back into what we believe will be more of a savanna. And so that's what's exciting to me because it's going to be way more beneficial to the wildlife. And so if I once we get it to where we need to be, grasses are planted, wildflowers are planted, and we step away, that's something that we could return 10 years from now and see mm-hmm. See what it's supposed to look like for the most part, minus probably the invasives that have came in. Yeah, because once you get, I think that's it's important to talk about is is a lot of the things that um, the techniques basically that that we talk about are initial upfront things that need to be done, and then once you get those done, then you simply enter into phase two of projects, which is maintenance phases. And that's where the prescribed fire really comes in handy. And yeah. up front, yeah, there's a lot of work in many times, many occasions, many properties we go to to get it back to something um, that is more productive than the state that it's in. But once it's there, man, that that ain't bad work at all. No. It's like, where's my next project? The worst part about it is <laughs> I haven't, we haven't, I don't, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but there's always that a lot of work to get it there. Mm-hmm. And there's never a property where it's like, oh, you're set up. You just need to maintain it and do damage control. That's it. Yeah, that, very, very little properties once, are like that. Once we get there, it's going to be very easy to maintain. It's just mm-hmm. be prescribed fire. What We're basically replicating nature. Yeah. Two types of disturbance. We're going to graze with dis- for disturbance, replicating the buffalo and other animals, and we're also going to fi- uh, send fire through there. So... One of the questions I kind of had in my mind as we were getting into this was, do you spend more time checking your trail cameras or do you spend more time doing habitat work? That's and and the thing is, just like we just talked about is up front, yeah, you, you ought to be doing a lot of habitat work on many properties. Then you have the time to be able to really check your trail cameras. And, and after you get past the big hurdle and you're in a maintenance phase, man, that's... That's when you're super excited to check those trail cameras because you see the fruits of your labor and you see those improvements from day one in your deer herd. Oh, I, I, mean, I think or I'm... your turkey population. Just see more turkeys on camera or quail, whatever it may be, whatever your goals are. Imagine that success of going and seeing the fruits of your labor through checking your trail cameras instead of just focusing on checking your trail cameras and crossing your fingers and hoping for a change. That's probably not going to happen because you haven't actually done work. Yeah. I think of it uh, uh, somewhere in, along the podcast we've talked about insanity of how how many of us dream to have a Boone and Crockett show up on camera. You're like, oh, I, I hope oh, there's I one. Oh, I do. Yeah. I hope there's one that sure. shows up. 
But then you look at it and you're like, what have I done to allow an animal to get to a Boone and Crockett? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, I mean, it comes down to habitat and providing more or better habitat for the wildlife. Mm-hmm. And so that's one way you can really, if you want the Boone and Crockett, go do the work to get the Boone and Crockett. And uh, of course, other things that we actually did that podcast with Dan talking about, you know, basically what yeah. it takes to grow a Boone and Crockett. Um, but when we're talking about, you know, hunter management and things as a, as this conservation topic, you know, down the line later in the podcast, but it goes so far beyond just not pulling a trigger to make things like that and make big jumps and huge progress on properties. But I, I think the it's just important to note as we go further into talking about techniques that are going to have this long-term conservation mindset is you got to do the work up front to see those changes. Yep. Yeah. To get the results, you got to do work. And it doesn't, it's, it's never just dump a bag of whatever out that's going to get you there. There are really no shortcuts in the world of habitat management. I no. guess the only shortcut I can think of would be a skid steer with a big grinder head on the top of it that would be able to shortcut the chainsaw and back pain. But other than that... Yeah, or dozer just leveling stuff, burning it off. And, that's but the I, shortcuts. That, that's, that's right. And, and sometimes, just depending upon the site, those are the best ways to do it, for sure. But... A, you, you're not going to buy a product out of bag and be like, yep, I'm off to the races. Yeah. It ain't going to work not, like that. It's not that easy. If it was, everybody would be killing Boone and Crockett's. Yeah. So, anyway, timber management. That's one of our first big, long-term, conservation-minded projects we can do to have a long-term effect keyword, on our habitat. Keyword management <laughs> yeah and, I, and I, we didn't even put it in the notes because there's so many things we want to talk about but the first one being tsi timber stand improvement basically we're opening the canopy by removing um species or or types of trees that aren't going to provide any benefit in the future so we're removing species that maybe they're not supposed to i, I think not a, site specific yeah just sycamores scattered yeah. into the into ridge the tops ridge tops you're like what they're supposed to be around the water source so doing things like that or if you have 20 oak trees and all within a little small area you're going to remove a good portion of those so the very best of those oak trees are now not competing with all the others in that area for the same nutrients and so they can grow a lot faster and are a lot healthier for the timber stand improvement bingo and i think that was a huge point because this is a long-term deal this timber management it's long-term crop basically i know we explained that before but i was thinking about it the other day and adam we talked about it before the, the podcast started but for for ease and for an illustration of timber management and why it's so incredibly important think about if you've ever done it before You've been broadcasting, um, you, you could have done it with corn or even um, turnips, and you just planted too many in an area. And then they came up, they all grew, but that corn was so tight, one, it probably never grew an ear and was stunted and short, but they all actually ended up growing. But basically there was no crop to be harvested because they grew so tight and there's so much competition. Or you think of the turnips, there's so many leaves in there are tops there but they don't have grow an actual good decent bulb the actual fruit isn't there you don't get to see that because they're so densely packed 
Think of that as timber as you go into your your woodlot or your forest or whatever it is. Are your trees too densely packed? Are they ever going to produce anything? Even if you just let it go and years and years and years down the road, is there going to be decent, valuable timber or productive timber? Even if you don't care about the value, just productive timber. Yeah, I That's why it, management is so important. TSI, you've got to do it. Yeah, and, and I think of when you use that analogy, I think of the first time we ever tried to broadcast corn, my mm-hmm. brother and I, and it grew about four foot tall, and the only ears we got were about three inches, yeah. and there was maybe 20 It's kernels. like what you see in your Chinese food, those little guys. Yeah, it was just like, <laughs> it was kind of like, man, that was terrible. And And then you think of, okay, so each stock probably made a little bit of a, of a cob and a few kernels. Then you look at it from an oak standpoint and you say each one of them made acorns. A couple. But sure. they didn't produce a nice heavy a crop. A good bumper crop like it could if it just was a great... Maybe 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 you go from... And this is real life. Maybe you go from 20 trees down to three. I mean, that's like... We've seen stands where it's like, oh my gosh, this is... This is horrible. This The direction that this timber is going or the rate that it's going, slow. And just because you see a tree that's five inches in diameter doesn't mean it's 20 years old. Yeah. If it's I, densely packed, man, that thing can be old, really like, old. That's like looking at a tree trunk and saying it's this old based on that and then looking at a deer and saying it's this old based on those antlers. Yeah. it it It's very inaccurate. I think of... You know, another thing I think about when we think about timber is, and it, it's not something that happens, like, if you do a TSI treatment, you can turn around and three years go back and do another TSI treatment. I'll follow it up, for sure. And and I I think you, sh- yeah, I know you did. You shared it, but it was a, uh, what was it, a pine tree? Pine tree growth rings? Oh, yeah, yeah. It showed yeah. thinning versus mm-hmm. uh, basically that every time they had thinned, you saw the growth rings, and it was like Just get larger, huge larger gaps. And yeah. the same thing is going to be true with any tree. Once it gets that competition removed, it's going to grow a lot faster and be a lot healthier. So timber stand improvement is one of those things that you can do and really improve the timber over a long, long-term long process. I think that's why a lot of people don't do it is because it's not that just short-term quick deal. I'm going to see next year I'm harvesting these trees because I did TSI. No, no, no. It's It's not going to work like that. But I promise you, in the meantime, in between harvests, that TSI work that you do is going to be better for your wildlife. It's going to be better for those individual trees. You just have to do it. And here is another point I want people to know that hinge cutting is not TSI. Hinge cutting is a way to drop trees and to make some habitat, and but it is not timber stand improvement. It, I think that's one of the things that I really struggle with when I see people go into a timber stand and they do nothing but hinge cutting i think that goes back to the, the beginning of the podcast where we're just talking about like yeah you know you want to Im- improve the habitat but the, just the education of that practice not fully aware of i guess the implications the long-term implications oh. of what it is you're doing oh yes and i've seen a lot of timber get frankly really hurt because even nice looking young oaks get hinge cut mm-hmm. over and it's just if I was a logger, I wouldn't touch that anywhere anywhere in the future because it's just a mess. So understanding what TSI is and how you can use it effectively and knowing what hinge cutting is, 
and how to use it and not use it. So, And if you've done that and made that mistake, just just learn from it. Just dive in to understand TSI further and then go out and, and you know, use those techniques. Don't, don't fret about what you've done. Just, I think it's important to, to just learn and educate yourself and, and make the change in your mindset. Yeah. I, and next one, woodland and savanna restoration. Um, this is something, I mean, you think about reading the natural history of this great country and you think of all the savannas America. that we had. We had oak savannas and we had pine savannas. We had multiple types of pine savannas, all, multiple all, types of oak savannas. Yeah, Incredible. all across the country. And now you drive and you had the savannas even in Kentucky. Um, oh, oh that, yeah. That basically Virginia. nobody, you don't see those anymore. And if you, for me, I, I get the great thrill about looking at properties on Web Soil Survey and, and seeing, oh, that actually registers as a savanna, and it doesn't look anywhere near a savanna. Remotely close. So that's something you can also do that's really going to be a long-term effect. And that's exactly what we talked about a few minutes ago on the, on the family farm is we're cutting out all those cedars and other types of trees that aren't supposed to be in that area to where it's going to be looking like a woodland, more like a savanna. And uh, as basically, it's woodland down towards the bigger part of the timber, but it gradually transitions into savanna and then on into what I hope to look like a prairie. So um, big changes that can be made there, and it's very productive for the wildlife. So that's something you can do. Um, again, um, understand what your farm in your area is you know uh, native speaking something i'm i'm extremely guilty of and this was years ago as i was you know either looking at properties from afar or, or scouting from a distance i would always associate timber or or you know composition of timber to open as oh well that farm's got a lot of cover like you do you remember doing that are you no, guilty yeah. of that timber was cover Oh yeah, yeah, and like I, I had that mindset, like oh, if I went out, if I went out west, or if I hunted, you know, this public ground, I'd want to be here. Or no, I don't like that public ground because it's too open or it doesn't have enough woods. Man, I, after learning and educating myself on what cover actually was through time, I'm more of the guy who's like, find me the most open place I want to go there. Yeah, I, that's why we love Oklahoma, oh. and Kansas, and, and it's like. We got to get away from that mindset and, and not shy away from having savannas or, or woodlands yep. because one, it's, it's natural. We need to conserve those, those resources, but two, man, it's extremely productive for hunting. I, I extremely. Think my favorite definition of a savanna was, is just as much, just as much a grassland as it is a forest. And I think of you, when you really try to think about that, it's like, it's almost like saying it's just as much a swamp as it is a desert. It's like it, it just doesn't really make sense. But once you see one and you kind of see that ecosystem, you're like, I can totally get why. When we There's had, a light bulb. We had that across the landscape. I totally get why we had so many buffalo and so many elk and so many other species because it was a very efficient, very productive ecosystem. And that's why that's why at the family farm I'm so excited to see that transform and and that ecosystem be in place. Mm-hmm. So, um, you added pine and oak, just for the different types of okay. savannas and and what's it oh, woodlands that there were like 
and that covered such a large portion of the country. But yeah. again, in this day and age, we don't we don't know that. We couldn't even see that or imagine that. But you look across from, you know, North Carolina that swooped down through all the south, a big portion of pine savannas, and then the oak savanna Midwest to to the central portion of the country, even uh, and further west. California had a yeah, huge, huge oak savanna out mountain. there. So definitely something that I, I would. I'd love to see more of those across the country. Next one is kind of, you know, when you say glade, a lot of people automatically think Everglades. But here in the Ozarks, we have these things called glades. Very, and it's, we, it's pretty site-specific yeah. to, to this area. but Kind of mountainous frame, very well, shallow soil, very uh, very diverse. Had lots of different species on it, but it, it was a lot of grasses and uh, a lot of wildflowers. And so that... That honestly, when you think of the buffalo, that was what the woodland buffalo. That's what they made a lot of their living on here in the Ozarks was those glades because there was a lot of grass available. That's something that we're doing. That's a glade restoration process. That basically here in the Ozarks, glades are now called cedar glades, and that is because the cedars have taken over our glades. But doing a restoration process like that is something long term. That once we cut these cedars out, we've sent a fire through it. That's something that. We could come back 10 years from now and see that work still, see our hard work still providing value there. And that, you talk about a quick change. There's going to take time for, you know, oak savannas to to develop, you know, and, and grasses to really establish. But really, we've seen it. Glade Restoration Project, you go in, you cut cedars, and you follow up with prescribed fire. Boom. You're you're pretty much there. First year, you see the change. I mean, it's it's drastic. So that's that's one of those things. If you have that present on your property, and you like to see change, there you go. The Do next, that one. The next one I have is tree planting. So you can plant trees that are long term conservation minded management practices for your property. I think of one that is kind of that always comes to mind for me is the shortleaf pine. I live at the very top end kind of the northwest end of the shortleaf range. And during basically the great boom of America, the shortleaf pines were almost harvested out completely and really, really dropped that population back because we used to be just, we had pines, savannas, and shortleaf pines scattered across the landscape. And they were almost completely cut out. I mean, the, the largest sawmill in America was a couple counties away here in southern Missouri. And, and they cut those pines out to make two-by-fours and build cities. And and now there's not many across the landscape. And that's something that Matt knows this because I, I just love seeing pines scattered across the landscape. And so that's something that we can plant that's going to provide just – it's going to provide even better habitat. And it's – for me, I just think it's much better than a, than an eastern red cedar. So oh, we're planting sure pines. Is. Or you can plant fruit trees. Um, look at, I, look at, Go back to your site index again. What what does it say it should be here for you? It's that shortleaf pine. Yeah, woodland. So look and and you know if you were in Iowa, northern Missouri, and you don't have any bur oaks left in your timber, maybe it's bur oaks. Yeah, I th- I think it, even in Kansas, bur oaks. Oh, I, I, big time. I, there's all kinds of different species that probably were at your farm or in in your location that at some point were killed out or um the american chestnut that's a whole nother story but that's one that was scattered across the country and now it's hardly anywhere to be found so 
There's all kinds of different things you can do to educate yourself on what was there and at some point was taken away or harvested out. And so there's all types of habitat restoration projects you can do that are going to be beneficial for years to come. Next one. Big one. Soil conservation. And it doesn't seem like it's that practical to possibly a hunter. But if you're a landowner or you're in, let's say, primarily an ag area, soil management and soil conservation is super, super important. And if you do plant food plots, it's great to understand, have the knowledge to be able to use these practices that we're going to talk about to just have better food plots, more successful food plots. And the question is, are you plowing or disking your food plots? Yeah, that one just hurts. This one is very, it hit homes, it hits home hard because this is exactly what, when I said I would talk about the story for me, this is exactly what I was talking about. I thought we were doing conservation work and I thought we were doing things to improve the habitat by plowing, disking, harrowing, planting a food plot and letting a few deer come in and, and benefit from that for a few months out of the year. When we talked about it, you do all that work. Man, and, and you, how many trips you know it took to plant these food plots and turn the soil and prepare the seed bed. And your crop was really beneficial for what, maybe three months out of the year? Yeah, not, not very long. When we think about the long-term aspect of things, that's such a small window. And that's a lot of time for you to devote to food plots to get that base, basically back and in return for your goals. We were basically, we thought we were really providing a huge benefit to the wildlife. But we planted that, that was really hardcore in the late 90s when we were doing that early to mid or mid to late 90s we were really practicing heavy plow disking harrowing planting those food plots five months later you wouldn't have seen the benefit of it but we're seeing the negatives to that work today still so i don't even know 20 years later over 20 years later we're looking at that going man that was really stupid and and that is one of the biggest things that we try to hopefully help people understand because that was a horrible mistake that we made that we're trying to help you prevent from I, making. So I remember when I, w- I was in college, I was working at uh, Quantico Marine Corps base. We had food plots and this is a like a 150,000 acre military base. And we drive all over that base with big tractors, big four wheel drive tractors and massive discs jumping from plot to plot to plot across these different areas and we'd work the soil and we'd come back and plant it whatever you know do all that but i I just as i was starting that was really i guess the formidable years for me because i really started getting into you know no-till drilling understanding what that was and that was as i was leaving they were seriously considering getting one and I hope I don't I don't actually know if I'm followed up and see if they did get one but it was like guys we need a sprayer to go with one pass because basically we, we would go we'd mow it and then disc it and then come back and plant it and it was like we could save so much time Ugh. and taxpayers dollars <laughs> if we simply just went and sprayed and just no-till drilled yeah right back in there mm. Mm. and like when I talk about like time on tractor dude like 
long, long hours because oh. you're just, I mean, there's so much wasted time. It's not like you were doing a bunch because the food plots weren't all that big. You're just driving from one to another, to another, to another. I, I think oh. that's how long it took us to plant food plots when we were doing all that. Yep. I mean, it took us a month just to get food plots in. And then the, the forage benefit was only there for five months. But then today we still have the negative. That's like mm-hmm. to You're me still paying for that. Oh, it's it's painful to even think about. It's it's a steroid shot. Short term benefits, long term disaster. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. And it, we talked about it last week, kind of what the plow does, what the disc does, or what it did to the soil, and that's why trying to steer away from that. And if you're new to food plotting, don't do it. Consider no-till drilling or renting a no-till drill or just simply broadcasting using culture packer to roll over that soil and basically conserve that ecosystem that's the soil there's what what boggles my mind is because you can't see it and it's it's still pretty much new information if you will that's coming out about the right way to manage soil but it's so incredibly diverse like the more we learn about soil, the less we know about soil. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so. that's why we have to learn those because of the practices that were instilled in so many generations and practiced throughout the years. We've, we've got to do something. And, and these practices, no-till drilling broadcasting, is so critical to the success and the long-term benefit of your property, whether you're a farmer or you're just a food plotter. So incredibly beneficial. What we do know is minimizing disturbance, diversity, and armoring the soil is key. Those three things. And so really that's that's what we try to implement in our food plot program. So you you good on soil? I'm good on that. All right, I, I, let's I, move to the next super, one. Super, super important. So if you don't know about that's it. That's a whole other podcast. Oh, We've talked about multiple. it a lot in past podcasts, but that's something that soil is... Soil conservation is is one that I think a lot of us are destroying it and not even realizing it. So let's move past that doom and gloom and get to another thing that I just I, I love and that you can do long term um, and see the benefits last well well into the future. So native grass planting that's something that I think about a lot for family farmers. We were dominated by fescue. And so we're the country is dominated oh, by fescue. Yeah. Well, we're dominated by fescue, and and we're trying to get into this, still continuing to have cows, but also have diversity. So we're going to implement native grass and wildflowers into our into our rotation of grazing, but also through that we're going to have a lot better habitat for the wildlife. And, it's not one species of wildlife. That's no. that's the thing that makes it even more conservation minded is that this is going to benefit rabbits, this is going to benefit the quail, this is going to benefit turkeys, this is going to benefit deer. Like it's amazing. Uh, that's a it, that's such a bang for your buck. It's like it's not even I'm funny. It's great for the pollinators. Yeah, everything. I, I and that's why long term and, and this is what's so fantastic from the cattle standpoint is. It doesn't take a lot of fertilizer or any or lime to get these established because they are native to that site. They can 
flourish on that site. They're adapted to that site. So I don't have to plant a non-native like fescue and fertilize it and lime it heavy to get it to be very productive. We can plant this and it's going to be fantastic just the way it is. You know, one thing, and this is a quick, quick story, but I was growing up and we were cattle, cattle uh, family, and it was so dominated by fescue in Virginia. Um, I obviously dreamed of the Midwest, had never taken time out, you know, this way and, and really learned and been able to educate myself on identifying these species, but like knew what they were all about, knew what they could do, the benefits to them. But as I got older and spent more time out here, obviously I could ID them no problem. As I go back home now to Virginia or, or the East Coast really in general, it's amazing to me, really, the ditches that you're like, there's Indian grass there. Yeah. There's there's little blue. There's there's big blue. Holy cow. I had grown up in such a mindset, and, and basically I was oblivious to the fact that, hey, it is here. But no one managed it. No one even talked about it. And it was, if you want it, you just have to go back and plant it, which is most likely very true. But... It just amazed me that I, I was really oblivious to the fact that it was here the whole time. No. I just, I, I just w- didn't have the uh, the mindset to be able to identify it. I think about all those. And it was ro- oh. no one. It was like nowhere, nowhere to be seen. Like we, here, we can drive down. And be like, well, we just did the other day. We took gravel road and guys' uh, property <laughs> we're at went went next door, and it's like, I mean, that's a really glady area. It's got Indian grass. Little blue, it compass had compass plant, plant um, black-eyed Susan, it had everything. And it's like, wow, that's really neat. Virginia never saw anything like that. Yeah, I was deprived as a little kid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but it, this this mindset of going back and planting these grasses has that conservation ideal to it because, like we just talked about, I mean, so many things can benefit, and if you just plant it and maintain it. And restore that ecosystem. Oh gosh, the benefits are endless. How many times have we seen across the country a area that's got native grass with mixed fescue? So there was fescue planted at one point, oh, so many. but the soil was not amended correctly. And I say that very loosely because correctly for the fescue, right? But and so over time, the fescue kind of just it's slowly as... dwindled away, and the natives yeah. started coming back. And then you see cedars encroaching, and it's like, you know, cut those cedars, spray that fescue, you have a amazing little bedding area right here. Well, what you just described was Iowa, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, minus a smooth brome. Right. Um, yeah, and, and we see that everywhere. It's, and it's it like, is It's everywhere. not that hard to cut those cedars and get the other invasives out of there and, and let nature do its thing it's much easier to work with mother nature than against her i can't remember which client it was we were at but we were talking about basically going from you know completely like all timber back to like really quality just good habitat that can be maintained easily versus going from like an open field to really good prime habitat yeah and it's so much easier to go from an open field to prime habitat really than it is to maintain or you know restore all that timber like yeah. that's a lot of work it's a lot of where deer makes its living and where best cover is is from 
Four foot and down? Four yeah. foot and down. So it's a lot easier to grow something and get it four foot and down than it is so from much 100 easier. foot to down to four foot. And that goes back to the comment of like, when I looked at public ground, you know, from a distance, from an aerial, it's like, oh my gosh, it's so open. But from an aerial, you can't see what's actually there. It could be so dynamite and you're just passing it by. Yeah. Passing I, it by. I, I think of when we're going back to the native grasses, another huge benefit, not not only, and we'll talk about the diversity here in a second when we get into more of the pollinators and wildflowers, but talk about native grasses. Think of the root systems. And no, I think of the man. National Wild Turkey Federation uh, National Convention, and, and we stopped by Pure Air Natives, and mm-hmm. they had that poster that showed turf grass root systems versus other types of native grasses and wildflower root systems. And it's, it's mind-blowing, people, mind-blowing. When you look at... Turf grass, we talk inches of root system. It was six inches. Six which inches. Is tall fescue, six inch root system. And when you talk about native grasses, we're talking feet of root system. We're talking 10, 12 feet of root systems. Yeah. In established native grasses. And, and for some reason, we still want to plant turf grass for erosion control. Oh, Explain yeah. that one to me. I don't understand it. When, earlier when you talked about Band-Aids. I was thinking about uh, all the acres we have devoted to turf grass on the side of roads that Goo. could be just left alone in native grasses galore and have much better erosion control, much better habitat. Um, maybe not for the deer, but deer will certainly take advantage of it. But all the rabbits and other things that would be right there and have great habitat and control erosion and flooding. But yet we plant turf grass. You think about like how much dirt work is is done over time to create new roads and blah blah blah. blah. Like all that all that soil is like oh please it's just in a state like oh erode me <laughs> erode me because like it's been yeah. moved like it's not stable it's not packed whatever and it's just like oh it's in the perfect condition to be eroded and then I'm gonna put a six inch root system on you and think you're gonna be golden for years oh. ah. Man, yeah, we're dumb. Another th- we're not a very smart species, are <laughs> yeah. we? So when you look at wildflower and, and another thing, so moving from grasses to wildflower and pollinator restoration, there's all kinds of programs going on right now where people so much money and grants, huge initiative oh, to get this, huge. and they're for good reason. We've destroyed the wildflower prairies and and other places where. Monarch butterflies and other pollinators were making a, a living, and we planted fescue or something, some crop, and it's not nearly as beneficial. But now we're starting to use that and really push that initiative on people, and this is something we can take advantage of and and plant. And here's the thing: when they're saying pollinators, understand that that their their goal is to provide something for pollinators. But what you're going to benefit from is they're going to help plant that, but you're also going to have great forage and great cover, and not only for just deer, but all kinds of wildlife. When you think about a deer, a young wildflower, they're going to eat that because it's great forage. As it grows up, it's going to provide great food for insects, for the pollinators. But then as it makes seeds, it's great forage for quail. But in the meantime, while those all those insects are coming into all that diversity in wildflowers, all those insects are great food for birds, quail, turkeys, even even um, mammals. So keep that in mind when we're planting these, that it's not just even though the government has one goal 
of providing that, you're going to get huge benefits across the board for your wildlife. It, it It's incredible because I think pollinators are so underrated. But, you know, you think about crop systems and, and massive crop fields and everything. Like, you can thank pollinators for, for the food that you eat. Like, they're so I incredibly important. I think they say every, t- every three meals that you eat, two of them were brought to you by a pollinator. Yeah, you're, you're welcome. <laughs> exactly. That's and, why it's like, uh, even, even if it had zero benefit to wildlife, which is, that's not even closely like true, it's so beneficial. But even if it didn't, I'd still be playing it because I like to eat that much. Yeah. Like, guess you just got to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me, let me get a And when you talk about tea. the root system, uh, and we talked about compass plant earlier, it's got a over 10-foot-tall root system, and it grows. I mean, when you want something to hold some soil, look at some of these native species and their root system and try to make the argument that turf grass is going to— just try me to make the <laughs> argument that turf grass is better for erosion. Come at me, bro. So, well, it, it, we didn't talk about, like, the hollow stalks and everything. I, I, I think about, like, uh, you know, a bush hog. Oh, my gosh, when you go and bush hog some of these things down, that stalk that when that— species dries out is home for additional pollinators like the next year yeah like you can't be don't don't go in there bush hog even though like it's not showing showy anymore it's not forage like you still have to preserve that it's ugly uh, don't bush hog it please if it's, if it's ugly i guarantee you it's really beneficial yeah <laughs> i mean really. if it's just nasty and chaos i guarantee you animals are making a living in there so Old field management is another thing you can do that's a long-term benefit. And one of the quickest ways to do that is spray out the non-natives. Most likely a turf grass like tall fescue or broom. Um, brome, sorry. I about said broom sedge, but smooth brome. Bromey. Tall fescue, smooth brome, or bahia grass or Bermuda grass. Spray those out and let nature run its course. Most likely the first year you're going to get a huge shot of summer annuals, ragweed, pokeberry, all kinds of beneficial species. So that's something that you could do that's just going to be a quick quick management practice but long-term benefits. You could do it now, and, and you could see extreme benefits year one. So that's another one of those things that we talked about er- earlier, that mindset you want to see a quick result, old field management. Yep. But still has long-term you know, benefits too. Yes, Extremely for beneficial. sure. And I think going back to the native grass, that's one thing where people just – I don't know why it's not as showy, and I, I guess it's because, you know, you plant a food plot first year, you have this big, beautiful, most likely lush green food source. You plant a native grass, and you may get a little discouraged because first year, you're like, huh, where's my six-foot-tall switchgrass? Yeah. But it Patience, takes young time. It takes time, to est- it takes time to make wine. So mm-hmm. give it a little bit, a few years, and I guarantee you'll, I, don't, I guess I should backtrack. I'm going to crawl that on you. As long as you didn't plant seed too deep, you're going to have a great stand. So keep that in mind. It takes some of the best things in life take time to develop. That's so it. let's just use an example of screens. This is one thing that almost make me want to beat my head against the wall when I see this on We're social media. We're talking about media. visual screens. Yes. For like screening a plot, screening the Trying road. Trying to make a visual barrier for your food plot or from the road. For me, I go back to the autumn olive. Ugh, there was a time in my life where my brother and I had the di- the discussion about planting autumn olive on on uh, the north property line along Gravel mm-hmm. Road. We discussed planting that. Praise I'm, I'm, God, we didn't. 
because you'd be kicking yourself so hard. It, right we now. already hurt ourselves enough with the soil destruction, but if we'd have planted autumn olive, oh, mm. I would I would throw up every time I go down there. But there's a lot of things developing where people are planting these non-natives and and that are air quotes sterile, um, and they're trying to to plant these non-natives to because something native doesn't doesn't meet their goals. And so they plant these, I think, a miscanthus grass. Miscanthus, grass. yeah. Oh, that, that's a really hard one for me to swallow just because it's it grows really tall. It looks awesome. You'd think, man, that's a wonderful screen. But if you planted, this is, my, this is what I tell some of our clients, is if you planted it and you said it's giant miscanthus grass and it's sterile, and then your buddy says, boy, that's a heck of a screen. Where did you get it? And you tell him it's giant miscanthus grass. And he goes to look for that in a store, and he sees miscanthus grass, miscanthus grass that's not giant, not sterile. He goes, "Oh yeah, that's it." He buys it. That could be a very invasive one, and it's it's like the telephone game. Just because you say it's this grass doesn't necessarily mean that that's exactly what they're going to plant. And same down thing the line, like with perennial ryegrass and ryegrass. People putting like cereal rye versus cereal perennial rye, rye. Yes, you got to make that that you know clarification. Hey, cereal rye, bro. Yeah, <laughs> there's a big perennial rye grass, all right. Yeah, <laughs> and there's a there's a lot of that going on right now. So if you can just think of a way to plant a native that's not as invasive or not invasive, then you can avoid the headaches that you may get. That that illustration goes right back to what we started with again. You know, I, I'm really happy that those people are trying to go out and and you know, plant things, be a part of the habitat, improve it, improve it for hunting. You know, that's, that's awesome. A great mindset, but make sure when you're doing these things and just do your research beforehand, just make sure you know what you're getting yourself into and are getting your information from a really valuable source. So you don't waste time and kick yourself down the road for possibly doing something and sharing information that really is going to hurt someone or hurt the habitat, um, in the future. Yes. And so this is a way that planting a screen, a native screen, so you can mix in native grasses and and switchgrass is the most dominated one. That's mm-hmm. what a lot of and we've even rec- we even yeah. recommend that. Yeah. But over time, we recommend adding shrubs and other species to break up the monoculture just grass, and you add these shrubs that are going to provide great woody cover for other habitat: quail, rabbits, turkeys, fawns, deer, whatever. And even the buds will probably provide forage for the deer as well. So by instead of just planting a straight monoculture screen, you can plant that native grass, but then supplement some other shrubs in there as well and have much better habitat but still have great screens. You know how many times like you get asked, whether it's you know, people reaching out through Facebook or, you know, Messenger or just texting, they always or I guess are typically looking for a quick answer, a short answer. Uh, when in reality, I guarantee you our answer is not going to be short or quick because it's it's lengthy and involves multiple species or multiple things that you need to, multiple steps to have basically the best recommendation to have long-term success and implement techniques and implement things across the property that are conservation minded. So if it's like, you know, what should I plant here? It's not going to be one species. It's going to be a mixture that includes 10 or, or, you know, or it's going to be a multi-step process. 
you know, when it comes to the management, it's not just like one thing and I'm done. How many times do we get asked, hey, I have this little wet area that's always wet. What can I plant to provide a great food source? And it's like you can't take something that's great in one area and put it in this other area and it'd be wonderful. You can't take a star basketball athlete and put him on a tennis court and expect him to be great. Same thing, you can't take a crop or a, a grass species that's wonderful on dry, rocky ground and put it in a wetland or an edge of a wet area and expect it to flourish. It just can't happen. Or or the, the other one that gets me is like, hey, I've got this opening, but it's, it is, it's really wet. I want to put a food plot here. What should I plant? It's like, well, maybe it's not the best place for the food plot. Maybe, maybe it's don't, if you're, if you're going to struggle to get a crop out of it, why are you putting your time into it? Maybe that area is best used for something else and, and select a site that you're going to have better success with a food plot elsewhere. Or it's this beautiful bottom. I want to have this beautiful bottom planting a food plot. What about this bottom? Oh, it's just pretty. But what wind are you going to have? I don't know. It's going to swirl in there like crazy. It's There's a lot of things that go into play when we're answering these questions. So, um I don't know where we got off on that, but let's keep Me it neither. back on. I, we're probably coming up on time, so let's let's, let's roll through these. I want to make sure we get through all this because this is all this stuff is really really good. Yeah, and so the next one is, and this is the one that I really struggle with because I you just see it a lot, and and it kind of goes with exactly what the we said about yeah. um, planting non natives, especially perennials. On your land is not necessary. It almost goes exactly against what conservation or what what my or your conservation definition no. is. The wise use of our natural resources. Natural. That's the key word. If you're planting something that's not natural to that area and it's going to compete with the native species, well, it's going completely against conservation. I'm, I'm going to say it's going to outcompete. Yes, the the natural resources because it doesn't have natural predators in that area. When we think everyone, I guess everyone, I don't generalize, but typically when you think of predators, you think of animals. But predators for a plant could be a disease or a fungus or a bug, something that is going to inhibit or slow that growth process down. Or and, it's an animal that's going to eat it. Yeah, or just, yeah, just simple. A deer could be a predator to soybeans that's just so simple but we don't often think about that so if we were to bring in a non-native plant species we are bringing in a species that is just going to flourish and probably do too good out compete because all the other species around it have natural predators there to help limit and basically do the management sometimes for you yeah i that's a huge you see that a lot with insects, like the emerald ash borer, mm-hmm. and, um, gypsy moth, other things like that. And and but that goes with plants as well. And and that's where like miscanthus grass, I see that a lot where people plant it and it just invades the area or bush honeysuckle because it's a, uh, bamboo. We go, we go on and on and on, on and, and on. on. So f- we really encourage you to try to find what's native to that area and plant it. Now with food plots, it's a little we're planting annuals and so there's a little bit different and the things that we suggest planting aren't known to be invasive years and years and years of testing that they aren't invasive so that's a there's a big difference there before you try to pin that one back on us so 
invasive species is one of those things to me is where you can leave a large thumbprint on your land. Well, you you you, you leave a, a large thumbprint in a neighborhood because if it's an invasive species, you're likely you, you can't control the spread of it. Whether no. it's wind, whether it's carried by rain, whether it's carried off by other animals, they they don't none of that knows property boundaries. So if you bring it to yours down the road, at some point it's going to get out, and you will be the guy that everyone points fingers at. And you don't want to be that guy. <laughs> you don't want to be that guy in the neighborhood. And if some, one of your neighbors brings it in, and cur- go have a conversation with him about the long-term effects that that species may have. I think keyword there was conversation, not, not an, an argument, argument or a fight. Yeah, and um, same thing. Same thing with you know we see it all the time on on uh, you know social media. Simply, if if you disagree with someone, maybe it's just a supply them with a credible link that they can research. You know. Yep. The topic with, and educate themselves on it. A conversation. Yeah, there you go. I and the next one. This one is I, I think is is really big because this is kind of like the fruits of of why we do everything, or why a lot of people go forth and conserve the habitat. And this is just conservation of our game animals and. If you're in an area, I think it's important to look at the prevalence or the lack of these specific game species, and that's going to provide you an indicator of where you need to focus attention at in your habitat. So let's just say if you don't have many turkeys in your area, well, do you have the habitat to support it? No. Do you want turkeys? Is that a goal? Yeah. Well, then why don't you do some things? Like it, sound, it sounds so silly because it's simple, but yeah. I think that mindset isn't often adopted or it's just overlooked. Like, well, I don't have many turkeys. I'll blame it on the state for the regulations. Well, no, probably not the instance that needs to be done. Let's go and focus on the habitat because that's what we can change. And that's what, yeah, yeah, you can write to your congressman or whatever um, about, you know, bag limits, whatever it may be, but you can directly impact the habitat. So why don't you focus attention there, provide everything. Now, if you still don't have turkeys, now you've got a leg to stand on. And I think we can do that for, you know, waterfowl as well. Hmm. If you're in a flyway and you're not getting birds on a continual basis, well, is your property or the resources that you have the ability to manage, are they providing what they're looking for? As they migrate, same thing with local deer herd. Uh, Small game. I can't like we talked about this the other day. We just had a random conversation about rabbit hunting. It's like, man, I love rabbit hunting. That was so much fun. I, I grew up rabbit hunting, um, and so did you. And, and it's like, if we, if if we, I think we asked each other a question. If we were to go rabbit hunting again, where would we go? And it's like, wow, there's not that many places that just come to mind. Like, oh, yep dynamite rabbits right now because the habitat is, is likely gone yeah yeah i think of how often do you, we just had this conversation about putting out for the quail the surrogators yes and mm-hmm. it's like well that was two nights ago i think yep. and uh or maybe it was last night actually uh because it was at the oh banquet. yeah yeah it was Man. last night where does time go anyway what happens um, when you get back at two in the morning? <laughs> yeah, and then there's time. Yeah, time. daylight savings. Ah! So it's it like, like three. Man, you, you can't blame it on the predators, and you can't. You can 
you can try and blame it on this and that, but when it all comes down to habitat, and that's the biggest thing of of really trying to manage the land of everything else is really just a band-aid or a quick fix, but the habitat is like the heartbeat of of that species. Well, it's so easy to point fingers and to point a blame at, you know, other instances or other people, whether it's a neighbor, or, oh, I don't have great deer. I got I only got young deer on my crop, blah blah blah. Well, are you are you providing within your habitat, within the property boundaries, are you providing the necessary habitat that a deer needs to get to age, to an older age class? Are you? If you're not, then why don't you focus your attention on that versus pointing blame and arguing with neighbors? I, I don't, it's, it's or, simple suggestions. Or, <laughs> or you're not shooting animals and you're letting the deer herd get to a high carrying exactly. capacity. Exactly, exactly. all the animals or all the deer are struggling just because they're competing. Same thing with trees and the other crop analogy that you use is they're all competing for the same nutrients. So if you have an overabundance of the population, it is your conservation duty to yeah. help manage, manage it. Them. They are a resource. They are a natural resource. That's why it's it's our duty to manage them. And and I think we often think about them as, you know, again, the fruits of the labor, um, which I think is good. It's a, It can be a driving force. But in some instances, we need to get them back into a spectrum or a range in which they should naturally be occurring for your area. If we don't manage them, no, nature will, and she's much more brutal. She's harsh, man. She's harsh. I think I, about I, the mange with coyotes mm-hmm. and other diseases that are out there to help knock back animal populations, and it's not pretty. Anything ecology, if there's one takeaway from, from ecology, it's everything is cyclical. And like you'll have times when their populations are greater, and then you have basically highs and lows, um, mountains and valleys, and basically those parameters in which that those mountains and valleys fall within is Mother Nature regulates things. She regulates things, and she does a, a good job at it. She usually lets it get a little bit worse than we do, and mm-hmm. when she strikes, she strikes hard. Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. So if we can minimize though that effect if you will, by keeping that closer to that equilibrium or that, that middle line. And by doing habitat work, we really aren't going to have to worry about those other factors. Yes. There's a way that we can all get along together. Oh, yeah. So conserving our next one, I think. Yeah. Conserving our hunting heritage. This is a big part of, for me, when we talk about when we're going to antis and saying, hey, we are conservation. I think of the old MDC. I guess it's not old. I think they still do it. But they have a catalog or a magazine they put out every month. And on the back page, they always have a thing called I Am Conservation. Mm-hmm. They go around with these different stories of people across the state that are doing things in the name of conservation. And and, and it's always funny because it's I Am Conservation. What are you doing for conservation? And it could be planting back native grasses and wildflowers and pollinators and all that wonderful stuff or it could be you're helping the riparian area on your farm and improving the erosion control whatever it is there's something you can always do for the name of conservation and we talk we want to talk about an impact that you can have years down the road again this is one of those things when when it comes to you know being an outdoorsman that time spent in, in a deer stand and a turkey blind and a waterfall blind like I mean, that's what we live for. That's the community that we kind of get behind. And that's why what gets a lot of people outdoors. And 
if you're not actively actively conserving or concerned about the hunting heritage that you and I enjoy right now, you're living under a rock. <laughs> it must be, but we've. This is one of those things. Again, this is a long term deal. We we've got to be thinking about you know twenty years down the road. It's staring us in the face right now for sure. But I think about you know I guess my unborn kids. I don't have kids yet, but like. I want them to be able to experience everything that I that I do right now with whether it's, you know, improving the habitat or, or getting out and hunting, but I know that I've got a job to do right now for them to be able to enjoy that. To me, I think of trying to when you look and we lose 2 million hunters in the last 5 years and you look at how can we get more people in the outdoors? And in this day and age, there's so many antis out there that are very vocal about everything we do. But there's other ways to get people in the outdoors and doing things for conservation and, and improving our hunting heritage. And they may never never even pick up a gun. But yeah. they may be right out there with us improving the habitat. And their dollars and their hard work is is helping the hunting heritage mm-hmm. and improving the, and the wildlife. So that's something that this whole podcast is devoted to. The name of conservation. And what can I do to preserve my hunting heritage? Take new people hunting. QDMA has got this awesome mentoring program that can get you started. They've got resources or or developing resources that will be available to help teach or coach or introduce new hunters. Those Those are things that we need to get behind and really just be active in getting new hunters out there. Or even if... What would even, I don't know, be worse is introducing someone, but then them not continuing to hunt because they're not successful. So you introduce, but then they fall out of the ranks of hunting. They need a coach. They need that continued mentor. You know, help those people um, to basically experience the things that you do in the outdoors through hunting. That's so important. I think we'd be pretty scared or or a little bit like, whoa, I did not know that if we were to really get to the heart of what it is that antis are trying to do and probably trying to preserve what they feel nature is. But when it comes down to it, we're probably in agreement that we both love the same thing. But we just look at the ways we manage it differently. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to say it's the same thing as like preservation, conservation. That's It's quite different. But... You know, the end result is, hey, I'm in love with it, like natural resources. We're just, we have two very drastically different ways to go about it, but we're right. Yeah, and another <laughs> we're thing right. is we're, hunters we're trying right. <laughs> to get people in the outdoors is like, and we see this a lot with how can I, I'm trying to find a way, a way to get my wife involved. And, mm-hmm. and it may not be saying, hey, honey, I got a 160 buck out here. Do you want to come hunt with it? It may be the simple thing of, hey, we're planting these wildflowers for the butterflies and the bees, and and um, I think it's it's really pretty right now. They're in full bloom. Why don't you come out here and look at it? Mm-hmm. And she may then take it up and just love it. Maybe she's a birder. A Maybe birder. she likes looking hey. at the birds. A birder. So there's always something you can hopefully find to get other people involved that maybe not have been involved in the past. Like, obviously our wives are sisters, but like... I never really thought that my wife was going to want to go bow fishing, but little did I know, I got an invite from a friend. He's like, hey, you want to go bow fishing? He goes, yeah, you can invite whoever, bring them on. I was like, I'll just, you know, tell my wife about it. 
And she goes, I've seen that before. I've seen a video that looks like so much fun. I was like, wait, are you serious? She goes, yeah. And I, I completely overlooked that opportunity. Like that might be a way to get her out there. And dude, she totally loved it. She was on a boat during the, like the middle of the night. It was bugs cool. Yet, yeah. The bugs weren't out right now. <laughs> um, you know, under the lights, that was just a cool experience. And she's like, I'd go back again. Like she was nervous to, to pull back the bow. Um, but Hey, I, it doesn't matter. She tried it and she enjoyed just being out there. So that was cool. But I completely, I, you know, that's all me. I didn't even think of that as an opportunity though, for her to get out there. That was so cool. Yeah. She bought a fishing license. Too, she so. bought a fishing license. There you go. She's a conservationist. Yep. Well, and this is a really funny thing. I told her, Hey, buy a fishing license. And I got her like to the page. And then she's, I was doing something else. And, and, um, Lo and behold, she buys a $3 PDF about how to how to get started in fishing. I was like, babe, you didn't buy a license. You bought a fishing guide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And she goes, wait, how much did it cost? I was like, it looks like it's $3. She goes, oh, well, at least it's $3. I need to get a license now. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I, let me see that phone. Maybe she should read that <laughs> PDF, though. Right. <laughs> oh, so basically, your final thoughts, Matt. My final thoughts, and I got them here, is, you know, at the end of the day, where do you stand? I think everyone, again, no matter what, is a conservationist. But are you an active conservationist or are you a passive conservationist? And I think if you if you answer that honestly, you'll you'll look back at the podcast, maybe take notes on this these techniques or, or things that we talked about, and then just dive head first into them. Well, that's my hope. Um, and be and portray that active conservationist role and get out there and make a difference, make an impact. Make a long-term impact. For me, I'm going to ask the final question once again. If you walked away from your farm today to never return, what would it look like down the road? How big of a thumbprint would you have left? Well, positive thumbprint. Positive. Yes. I'm still trying to correct my <laughs> negative thumbprint. But challenge yourself. Think about that. And think of ways you can do long-term management positive projects. Planting native sure. grass, planting pollinators, doing timber stand improvement, all that glade restoration, woodland restoration, savanna restoration. There's a long list of things you can do to have a long-term impact in a positive way. Would you rather, Matt... Chase a Rio in Texas. I'm going away from Habitat. They've heard us. Would you rather chase a Rio in yeah. Texas or a Merriam oh, come on. What? in the what? mountains of Montana oh. or Wyoming? Just a Merriam in the mountains or a Rio in the hill country with the blue bonnets? Oh, God. The blue bonnets blooming? <laughs> Don't answer that. Um... Yeah, I'm gonna go with mountains of Wyoming. I'm gonna chase that. I'm gonna chase that Merriam. All right. Um, I think I think that's a little I know more why. coveted. I, I, no, and you can stop talking because I'll tell them why. Because there's no rattlesnakes up there. In <laughs> <mountains>. <laughs> no, honestly, that I didn't. I didn't. I didn't bring that into the, uh, the realm of you know thinking through that. I just want. I want to see it. I want to witness it. I want to be a part of it. And I think it's a little more coveted. Um, I've got, I've got friends who go down to Texas quite a bit, and some opportunity there. I just haven't jumped on it to go, so I, I'm, I want that, All I want right. that Merriam. All right, what, what do you got? For Would me? you rather? And I, I think I know the answer to this question. It kind of goes back to the podcast, but and I think you know I, 
hopefully everyone everyone else will think about this too. Would you guys rather cut a hundred trees on your property or plant a hundred trees on your property? God. Think conservation minded, Adam. Yeah. That's very vague. Oh yeah. But I I think the only reason I kept it super vague is because, you know, I think people are trying to or have the ability now to kind of picture your family's farm through the podcast as much as we've talked about it. So, and kind of understand the direction you're going. Well, I might throw you a curveball because I think I know because I think I know what you're expecting me to say, but I'm going to say because my, and this is I 100% in the name of conservation, understand me clearly, but my farm is supposed to be a woodland so it is closed canopy for the most part across the landscape so i'm going to cut 100 trees because i'm going to have a much bigger long-term impact Mm -hmm. did you think i was going to say that i did yeah i did but i so know i love planting trees yeah oh yeah and i figured you know and we talked about you know doing some screens and stuff like that up up top um but i also know like the shortleaf pine there's places on there that they're coming back. Yeah. And they're, they're coming, coming back, back fast with the with the amount of open canopy and prescribed fire that we're putting in. So, mm-hmm. But overall, I'm going to have a lot bigger impact long term by cutting 100 trees. Basically doing a timber stand improvement across the big woodlot. And I'm going to have a lot better habitat because of it. Yeah. Now, I'm really glad I didn't... I got the time, but I didn't tell you the time because... As we put all these together, it's like this is one of those. This is one of the podcasts we just we gotta get through. We can't be we're rushed like because over this an hour message, and a half, aren't we? It's an hour and a half. We oh. we are. We've gotta nail this down and get the message out. And hopefully, if it you know rings true to you, um, you'll share it and share it with your hunting buddies because we need a movement from our hunters. I think to move into this conservation realm of active, actively conserving to make the impact that I know that we can and, and the impact that we, that we need, honestly. Yeah. I think there needs, certainly needs to be a revival. Um, when you, when Give you think me about a revival. when you think about it, I mean, we have gone, we've started slipping and going down a slope and we need to change it fast. We need to throw that. We need to lock the hubs and put that puppy in reverse. Yes, for sure. So there's a lot of things, and, and I, hopefully um, our challenge to you this week is what are you doing in the name of conservation? There's a couple of quick hitters. You can keep buying tags and also bring in new people to the outdoors so they're Woo-hoo. buying tags and gear. Another thing you could do is support a conservation organization, QDMA, National Wild Turkey Federation, Ducks Unlimited, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Quail Forever, I, I know everyone who listens is going to be at the QDMA convention, so I'm not going to say, like, yo, you should go. What you should actually do is bring someone else. Yeah. Bring someone else to that. That's a great educational event to really kickstart. Maybe it's, again, kickstarting your, your involvement in, in uh, the habitat. Great yep. resource. All right. I think that was a great one. Well, a good we one. That was a great you one. guys. Turkey season's coming, so we'll, oh, we'll see you in May. Yeah, right. We'll be back next week. All right. See you guys. See ya. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of Land and Legacy's Hunting and Habitat Management Podcast. If you like what you hear, check us out at landandlegacy.tv. You can submit a viewer question right there, and we're answering the podcast, or find us on Facebook and Instagram. Feels pretty good knowing that from the beginning of time, God has called us to be a caretaker, a gamekeeper, a manager of the land. So with that being said, don't you think we should do it all for the love of the land and the glory to God? Mm-hmm.